episode 255, UC Health, a shortlist of hospital innovations rolled out in 2019. Today, I speak with Richard Zane, MD, from UC Health. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Dr. Richard Zane is the Chief Innovation Officer at UC Health. He's also the Executive Director of Emergency Services there. Besides that, he chairs emergency medicine at the medical school, and he's a professor at the business school and at the medical school. At the recent Node Digital Medicine Conference, I asked Dr. Zane to talk about the 2019 innovations that he is most proud to have rolled out in their hospital system. We talk about three of these innovations, and then we get into the challenges that Dr. Zane and his team faced and overcame in the pursuit of those rollouts. What struck me most is the underlying dependency on data of all three of these innovations. Optimally complete data sets are really needed to make each one of these programs work as well as as they possibly could. And as a corollary to that, the necessity of collaboration with payers like insurance carriers and PBMs to even get close to that complete optimal data set sidebar because I can't help myself, it's going to be really interesting to see which payers and PBMs are ultimately willing to share data with providers, and honestly, which providers are willing to share data with other providers, to help their patients get the right treatments in pursuit of better patient outcomes. Because that's kind of a proxy to which ones value better patient care more than, let's just say, other things. I think the organizations that choose to share and choose to collaborate, you know, which ones self-sort into that category, that information is going to become more and more publicly available. And I wonder when and if that transparency will influence organizational decision making. In our conversation, Dr. Zane uses the term ethnographic a couple of times. Call me out of the loop, but I had not heard that term before. So just in case you haven't either, let me reference my go-to for mostly accurate information, otherwise known as Wikipedia. Ethnographic research, says Wikipedia, is a qualitative method where researchers observe and or interact with a study's participants in their real life environment. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Zane, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you for having me. Why don't you just talk a little bit about where you work and your title, what you're doing these days? I'm the Chief Innovation Officer at UC Health, which is University of Colorado Health. I'm also the chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the medical school and a professor at the business school and at the medical school. So between emergencies, you do the other things? That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk today about innovation, the innovation. I was going to say the innovation part of your job, but there's probably a bit of a misnomer because I'm thinking that you probably use what you've crafted in the innovation carve out of your job and the other work that you do as well. That's exactly right. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. We are very pragmatic, very ethnographic in how we define innovation. And innovation could mean everything and nothing, depending on who you ask and how they answer. But for us, it's how do we improve care for the provider? How do they deliver care? How do they make better decisions? 
And that's really what we do. And it must be actually easier you working in the ER in particular, which is obviously you don't have a whole lot of time to mess around to be able to really see how the innovation, what the needs are and what's going to work and what's going to not work. Well, what's great about emergency medicine is we're sort of at the fulcrum between inpatient and outpatient care. So we do see everything. We see a lot of patients. We see inpatient, we see outpatient, and we get to see the entire spectrum of healthcare. And that really feeds our ability to commiserate with providers across that spectrum and develop innovations that could change their lives and change the lives of our patients. If we're going to talk about your successes in 2019, what do you think from an innovation standpoint you're most proud of or or the accomplishments that you think are worthy of the spotlight? We have developed some pretty interesting innovations and the way that we value successes is really by how many people didn't die who otherwise would have, how many people get to see their loved ones, how many people don't, don't suffer. We also like to take advantage of the value creation when we partner with a company or build a company. But that's really not our primary goal. Our primary goal is as a strategic partner is to deliver healthcare and improve healthcare delivery. So on two, three levels, really, we've had three interesting successes. One was around the ability to do virtual surveillance. And surveillance means a lot of different things to different people. But for us, it means being able to interface with patients and predict and watch for deterioration. So across the inpatient spectrum, we developed a virtual sepsis program using our virtual health center, which means that every patient across our 12 hospitals, we are watching over. And we have gone from 99% sensitivity and 50-50 specificity to 99% sensitivity and almost 85% specificity. We combined four different predictive algorithms and we reduced the time to bundled care, which is antibiotics and fluids for patients with sepsis by over two hours, which is a big deal because sepsis is lethal and time dependent. Also important is we reduced 71,000 bedside alarms, alarms that nurses had to respond to. So we can actually say that people didn't die this year because we did this who otherwise would have. So you said that you use four algorithms in order to achieve this surveillance. Are they things coming out of your EHR system? Are they partially like at bedside? Like, let's start with where's the data coming from? And then maybe we can get into what the algorithms are. Data is coming from the patients and from our electronic medical record. So whatever it is that the patient has on them or whatever it is that's being followed about them, some have actual monitors on them. Others have a confluence of the electronic medical record, discrete clinical items. We have built a data warehouse. So whatever number of seconds or minutes, depending on what a patient may or may not be wearing, those discrete data go into our health data warehouse, including claims data, genomic data. And then we built tools on top of that to be able to mine those data to build these algorithms. So the data is coming off of the patients into our data warehouse. Uh, The algorithms are either in the electronic medical record or then embedded within the electronic medical record. And then they cause alerts. Patients get on a watch list and then we intervene with a clinician. One of the things that I have heard as being very difficult is operationalizing the alerts. If they go directly into the EHR system, then somebody's got to look it in the EHR system. And then who saw it? Was it actually the appropriate person or not? How do you go that last mile? So the last mile is the single most important thing. And that's a great question because my job is really to run through the briar patch, change management, and understand the point of care. 
and how this technology impacts the point of care. And a lot of that is about the user interface. What does it look like? Who is getting alerted under what circumstances and when? And making sure that there's the right level of human adjudication in those alerts and that decision-making. A lot of people are very aware that this last mile, exactly like you just said, that's where you make it or break it. So how are you really making sure that the alert gets into the EHR and to the right person? Because as you're talking about sepsis, like seconds count, as, as you had mentioned. So if the alert goes to the nurse who actually just went on lunch break or to somebody who doesn't quite know what to do with it, then that's lost time while they're trying to like, I don't know, text each other. It's complete and total closed loop communication, which means that just to be very operational, it means that I have an ICU nurse who's surveilling all of these patients and his or her job is really to monitor these alerts. And if these alerts come back and they are not acted upon, then there's an escalation and it continues to be escalated until it's acted upon. So what essentially happens is that if these four algorithms will fire, then that patient is placed on a watch list. When that patient is on a watch list, there's a very specific cadence for how often they're monitored and what kind of monitoring it is. Then there's specific interventions that are done, including blood testing, CBC and a lactate to be specific. And then when that comes back, it's closed loop again. And a clinician looks at that. When a clinician looks at that, it's a direct warm handoff communication with a bedside team. And if that bedside team does not respond, then we have remote intervention. So you actually have structured your department to facilitate monitoring like this. Like you have people who are watching for such alerts. Yes, we have a remote virtual health center that does surveillance very specifically. It's people process and tools. And if you look at it, it's a nondescript building about three miles from one of our main campus hospitals. And you walk in and it, it looks like air traffic control or NORAD. You had said that there were three things that you thought were most meaningful in, in 2019. What would be our second one? Our first one was the sepsis remote monitoring. The second one was looking at patients with acute leukemia. As you may or may not know, acute leukemia, especially in, in adults and older patients, is almost, not quite, universally fatal. When you look at the National Cancer Institute guidelines for how you pick chemotherapeutics for these patients, you can go from the top of the guideline to the bottom of the guideline or the algorithm. And then at the bottom, it says, pick the chemotherapeutic based on oncologist gestalt, for lack of a better term, which should not be too reassuring. Um, also, from the perspective of how you do with leukemia, it's how you do with your first chemotherapeutic agent, because if you have a bad reaction to that chemotherapeutic agent, not only does it not work, but you're sick from getting chemotherapy. So the specificity with which that first chemotherapeutic agent is picked is correlated to how you will do, live or die or live longer. So combined with our precision medicine group, combined with our oncology group and one of our payer partners and one of our tech partners, we developed a rapid scaling learning algorithm for predicting which chemotherapeutic agent has a higher chance of being successful. So combined with our ability to ingest genomic data, ingest uh, clinical data, these patients have their cancer genome mapped. We then enter those data in our data warehouse. Each patient has over 10 million data points that are analyzed to develop the predictive algorithm. And we've improved, not by 100%, but by almost 20%, how patients will do and react to their first chemotherapeutic agent. 
So that's pretty remarkable, especially since the usual timeline for NIH-funded research is seven to 10 years, and we did that in about 12 months. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that, whether you think that the critical factors or the reason why that improvement happened, which is striking and commendable, was because clinicians are using evidence-based pathways, which there's always issues there, whether the evidence-based pathways are better and or whether the feedback loop is sufficient so that you are able to actually update the pathways more quickly so you're now ahead. You know that virtually every disease that exists in medicine, you know, in the 80 to 90 percent has some type of a pathway or guideline associated with it. Some of them are evidence-based, meaning there's hardcore research to support it. The other end of the spectrum is that it's consensus-based. You know, four out of five dentists recommend Colgate. The tragedy is that if you present to healthcare with a condition that's guideline compliant, there's a one in five chance that that provider is actually going to follow that guideline. There's a lot of reasons for that. These guidelines were embedded pathways within the electronic medical record, meaning that when the provider followed the guidelines, it was easier and not harder, the path of least resistance, fewer clicks, not more clicks, and right. And it was also a learning algorithm. So it learned based on what the clinician had done before and what the thousands of other patients had happened to them before. So really being able to combine precision medicine genomics in a learning algorithm with ease of use was really the secret sauce for us. Is it learning independently or do you have, you know, humans in the back who are pulling all this data? It's a combination of the, of the two and there's always a human adjudication. So number three. Number three is a company that we essentially invested in a long, a long time ago in the innovation world. A long time is a couple years ago. And it's a company called RX Review that works in pharmaco decision support. So as you know, or probably know, or have heard, or I'm about to tell you, that for the top 10 most prescribed drugs in the United States, there's 25% chance that they're going to hurt you, 25% chance that they're not going to do anything, and a 50% chance that they'll work. So one in two is not great odds. What we did was we worked with a company to embed within the clinician workflow, clinical decision support around choosing pharmacotherapy. So this tool goes into the electronic medical record, looks at key discrete data elements, connects to the payer and the PBM and surfaces recommendations for pharmacotherapy that not only work, but also that your insurance company will pay. So you don't have the $50,000 or $50 bill at the pharmacy that you were not expecting, which means that you won't be one of the one in three people who don't pick up their prescription. Is this primarily for the $50,000 drugs or are we using this for like statins? Right now it's for anything. Wow. Right? So you write in the indication and then the CDS works in the background and surfaces those recommendations. Obviously, the recommendations are going to be dependent on information that's in the EHR. It's not only dependent on information in the EHR, it's also dependent on your insurance company and that connectivity to the insurance company or the the pharmacy benefits manager and whether they're willing to give that information. Some of these therapeutics are highly, whether they're going to work or not, may be dependent on things which are typically not captured. I mean, maybe even lifestyle stuff. So that's a great point. Right now, it's discrete clinical elements. And then for a few indications, pharmacogenomic information as well. But if I were to say, what's the future of this? It has to be everything that you're describing. You know, what you eat, what you don't drink, what 
how much you move, what your lifestyle is. Outcomes that matter to the patient. Outcomes that matter to the patient are incredibly important. But, you know, not letting perfect be the enemy of the good, having... Or done. Or done, exactly. That could be really meaningful, just especially given, exactly like you said, like there's a lot of cost involved here, you know, either cost to the payer if the patient doesn't pick up the drug because it's not on formulary and they just found out it costs $400 at the pharmacy and or costs to the both patient and payer if they are taking a drug that turns out not to be appropriate maybe for them and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do and then therefore they wind up with higher medical costs as a result of a non-functional pharmaceutical. Or injury. Or injury. So let's move on to what you have learned along the way. I mean, you've obviously achieved a ton in 2019. And generally speaking, that learning comes with, let's just say, some trial and error. How would you quantify or or maybe a sort of a short list of um, the things that you have realized in 2019? So a lot of this has been reassuring, meaning that it's incredibly important to be laser focused, which means we have to decide what we're going to do and decide what we're not going to do. I don't have a secret pot of money to do cool things, which means that healthcare cannot be the last bastion of industry where introducing technology increases costs and complexity. So that's been a very clear lesson. The other is that failure is fine. It's absolutely fine to, to fail. Just make a quick decision, fail fast, move on, and don't do the same mistake twice. So basically, laser focused. The reason there is because you've got a budget and you've got to stick within your budget and there's opportunity costs there. So if you're doing one thing which may not have as good of a return, results, outcomes as something else, then you're kind of sacrificing the incremental there. Yeah, it's not just budget. It's also bandwidth, how much humans can do and what we're capable of doing. It's just really important to decide what you're going to do and not chase every shiny object. Which is easier said than done because you go into a meeting and you see the coolest thing ever. So how do you work that? I mean, you got a spreadsheet with some sort of uh, your own decision-making algorithm on it, which you promise yourself that you're going to stick with? Yes, to be honest (laughs) with you. That's what we do. Uh, We have a really clear pathway for what it is that we will do and what we don't do. One is we are really looking broadly within the scope of intelligence, which really means for us, how do we make better decisions? So what are we interested in doing? We're interested in doing remote patient monitoring. We need to do device integration and those data need to build prescriptive analytics. That's what we're doing. Whether it's helping an executive organize the scheduling of an infusion center operating room better, deploying capital, or having a doctor pick the right chemotherapeutic. We are about making better decisions in healthcare. That's what we're laser focused on. We're not chasing the next shiny thing. So basically, when you evaluate a solution, the first thing on your list with a big star is, does it help achieve our mission and to what end? The first thing we do is evaluate a problem, right? The first thing we do is say, what problem are we trying to solve? Has anybody else solved that problem? Is there an existing solution out there? So I don't need to innovate when I can just imitate something. And I'm fine with doing that. If there is no solution, then I do an environmental scan and I see who the best partners are. Sometimes it's another company that's done things in healthcare. Sometimes it's a company that's never been in healthcare. It all depends on the team and the technology and how, they, how we work together. Someone said that the problem in healthcare in a lot of cases isn't innovation, it's imitation. That exactly. Somebody else solved it and it's just not not getting around. Yeah, my job is really to run through the briar patch and more change management and execution than anything else. On the other hand, it's been said, and I don't want to speak about doctors not being one, but I've heard 10 guests on the podcast say the same thing, 
that one of the things that doctors like to do is create their own solutions. I mean, for a bunch of really good reasons. One of them is if you create your own solution, then you know how the logic works, you know how the product, what goes on behind the scenes, number one. But then number two, you know, just a la Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm, what you buy, you buy into things that you helped create. So I have heard it said, or maybe I just made up, that one of the issues with imitation is that somebody else then made it and it's harder from a change management perspective. How do you walk that balance? Like if if you spend a little bit more time with the innovation, but the doctors on your staff actually help create it, it might be easier to do the change management versus picking up somebody else's technology and then spending more time in the change management. It's all about change management and implementation. And I'm fond of saying the same things over and over again. One is that compassion without competence is crap. The other is I am a doctor and I manage a lot of doctors. And managing doctors are like being on the Atkins diet. You don't actually live longer. It just feels longer. But the reality is that doctors are motivated to do the right thing, but they have to be treated respectfully. So we take their feedback. We partner engineers with providers and we iterate and quickly validate. And if something doesn't work, we throw it away. But if it looks like it's going to work, we don't just say, we'll get back to you. We iterate hour to hour, day to day. And then we have feedback loops to say, Dr. Smith, thank you for your feedback. We have fixed the problem that, that you identified with this solution. So they feel like they're part of it and they're being listened to. That's interesting. So it's more on how do you operation, like how do you go about the selection process and the introduction process and you can overcome the challenge that I just said. Yeah, you can overcome it. You also said that the point of technology is that it makes things more efficient. It doesn't add clicks and increase costs. So guiding principles for us around digital health and clinical decision support are it has to be within the physician or provider workflow. You can never expect a provider to leave their workflow to go do something regardless of how you incentivize them. The other is it has to be fewer clicks and not more clicks, easier, not harder, and bulletproof right. So talk to me about your innovation approach that you have. You know, some people use the innovator entrepreneur model. Some are, you know, you take investments, um, venture, more of that kind of model. Then you've also got the design thinking, you know, sort of problem-centered approach. And um, then, of course, we've got the infrastructure platform type innovation. I could guess which ones you're up to there. But do you want to talk a little bit about how you have maybe morphed into one of these models and sort of which ones you use in your pathway? Sure. The first is we are pragmatic and ethnographic, which means we don't go off and start companies for the sake of starting companies. When we identify a solution, a problem and then a solution, and then we develop a partnership, we need that partnership to be successful. So first and foremost, we are a customer of the thing that we're building. Next is we build for customer number two, not just for us, because if customer number two through 4,000 are not going to buy this product, it's going to go away. By doing that, we think we are relentless in how we make this work. We build teams to make it work, and then we somehow participate in the value creation. And participating in the value creation could mean a lot of different things. Mostly it means that we have a venture arm that makes an investment in that company, either a seed investment or a series A, usually not more than a series A, or we have warrants or we get revenue. But our ideal partners are partners where we are a customer, we're a revenue and an equity partner. If you had advice for, say, a digital startup, digital therapeutic, you know, somewhere in the journey of a digital tool, 
And I'm sure you're going to go back to your office and have a voicemail box that is completely full of voicemail messages from such inventors and, and innovators. What advice do you have for them? The single most important thing to me is not to have developed a solution to a problem you're not sure exists and don't know if it exists, assuming how healthcare works. Those companies go away really fast. The companies that I love are the companies that will identify a problem with me and help build a solution including how healthcare works, how providers think and behave, those companies will hit it out of the park every single time. So in other words, they should come to you when they've got a hypothesis of a problem and then like you don't expect them to walk in with a full-fledged solution? I do not want them to do a sales pitch to me about a solution when they don't know the problem. If they've been successful at 15 or 20 or 30 other healthcare systems and they want to co-develop and iterate around a certain topical area, I can be your guy. But I do not want, you know, Joe and Jimmy who've been working on a digital solution and have never been in a hospital or talked to a doctor or seen how a doctor works to come talk to me because I won't take that call. Got it. If someone has proven a solution elsewhere, then they could work with you to figure out how it applies in A, whether the same problem exists in your hospital and then work together to come up with like what the answer is for you. Yes, I'll take that call. And payers since there's a bunch who listen to the show. Is there anything from an innovation standpoint that, you know, insurance carriers or employers where you feel that there's collaboration potential? Payers are our partners in this. Payers have to be our partners in innovation. It cannot be just providers. It can't be just patients. It can't be just tech. Um, it has to be payers as well. They are intimate within this world and it affects them and it affects our patients. What's one thing that you would like payers or that you really see where payers could contribute to patient outcomes? I mean, is it simply providing their claims data or like, what do you want from them? I want a little bit of patience. I want them to think about innovation as something different than clinical transformation. Uh, innovation is really new to the world, which means that we are going to be successful. We are going to have failures. So I want payers at the table early, not late, and I want them to collaborate, not dictate. From a practice workflow perspective, it's difficult for you guys to switch up your workflow, obviously, for each individual carrier, you know, like, oh, this patient is Blue Cross Blue Shield, so we're going to do it this way. I mean, that just sort of doesn't work. Do you see that it's best to have kind of like regional collaborations where all the insurance companies agree? Or, you know, like, how do you, like, you're sort of stuck in the middle again, right? Yeah, the insurance companies don't agree except on one thing. They'd rather pay less and not more, and they'd rather us do less than more, which is actually pretty valid. So again, I think it's important to have them early in the partnership. Regionally, they're completely different one region to the next, but even within a region, they're all completely different. You're right. We can't switch up a workflow based on what the payer is, but everybody's looking at the same thing. Reduce hospital admissions, reduce lengths of stay, avoid procedures, avoid complications. If we have the same type of skin in the game, we're going to get to the same place. Even though maybe they're collecting slightly different quality metrics or something, doing something slightly different, if you're doing the right thing, chances are it's going to it's gonna be a workflow that supports a universal payer desire. I like your answer better. Yes. Dr. Richard Zane, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, 
you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.